I would like to just say thank you. Um, thank you to Sandy and her team for inviting me. And thank you to the musicians and the staff, the audio people, just everybody that made this happen for us. And thank you to you for coming. I would have no one to speak to if you hadn't come. <laughs> so this is probably the most challenging session for a speaker for multiple reasons. Because your best friend snored all night or kept you up partying. Because your mind has already departed hence and you're thinking about what's next at home. So I'm going to ask you to just try to pull it in and stay with me for about 45 more minutes. Can we do that? You are an amazing audience. I just love you. Have <laughs> I ever told you about the first time I spoke at the MBA in Minneapolis? Ooh. Well, I was, it was like that first year too and I still was figuring out everybody up here. And it was at Fourth Baptist Church. It was probably about 700 women. And they're just, a, how many of you are from Minnesota? Would you acknowledge that you have a reputation for being a little more reserved, a little more stoic? So I got up there and I did my song and dance and I got in the car after the first session and went back to the hotel and I called my husband and I said, I think that was probably the worst I've ever done. I could not connect with those women. They were all just like this. So he began to truth me. Honey, it's the word of God. It does not return void. One of those times when a wife wants to say, could you just listen and not fix it? So I got to the hotel and I prayed and I said, okay, Lord, here we are. I have three more torture sessions. Would you help me? So I went back that night, same songs, I converse. And I went back the next morning for the first session on Saturday and I was a little bit early. They were having a continental breakfast so most of the women weren't in there. And as I was bringing my stuff down, a, a very kind lady came up to me and she said, you might never know it by our faces, but this has been amazing and God has really used you. And I just wanted to hug her neck and say, you ain't just a whistling Dixie. I would never have known it. But y'all aren't like that at all. I can make a face and you laugh, so it's really fun. <laughs> Where have we been? We started last night by using the narrative of Nebuchadnezzar to help us recognize that we are all naturally glory grabbers, but how God mercifully and persistently pursues us to help us become glory givers because he is the only one worthy of glory. And this morning, we just kind of did a helicopter, an aerial view of glory through scripture, looking at how God has used various objects and vessels to display his glory, mostly imperfect vessels, except for Jesus Christ. And then we landed on the fact that we're it right now. Does God still use creation? Yes. Does God still use his word to show us his glory? Yes. But you are, the, you are the vessel, the present vessel on this earth that God is using. So we've done a little bit of application with each of those, just so I didn't leave you on a, a down and outer the whole time. But this session is really about how. How do we become glory givers when we recognize that we are naturally glory grabbers? It's interesting, the struggle, this struggle of being glory grabbers is not a new one. Think all the way back to Genesis. When the serpent came and tempted Eve, he appealed to her about being like God. 
and I think she was glory grabbing when she ate the fruit. How about in Judges chapter seven, when God is whittling down the size of Gideon's army all the way down to 300, God said to him in Judges 7, 2, the reason he did that was lest Israel claim glory for itself against me saying, my own hand has saved me. Think about Ananias and Sapphira. Glory is not mentioned in that passage, but why did they deceive everyone and pretend that they were giving all of the proceeds from the sale of their land. Peter said to him, after the land was sold, was it not in your control? The only reason I can think of is that they wanted the applause of man for their great sacrifice. I think also of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter six, where he says to all of us that when you pray, And when you do a good deed, and when you fast, don't sound a trumpet. Don't try to be seen by man. Don't look all mopey when you're fasting so that everyone knows that you're fasting. In other words, he's saying, don't make this about you. Don't do it for your own glory. And all of these narratives and then Jesus' teaching illustrate for us Jesus' awareness, God's awareness that this is our tendency And we've just touched on, highlighted a few of these examples. So how do we combat our tendency to be glory grabbers? And how do we become glory givers? I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. I studied for a long time to figure that out. Um, He's writing to the church at Corinth, and what has happened is that he has planted a church there, and he lived there for about a year and a half, and then he left to do ministry elsewhere. And in his absence, false teachers sprang up in Corinth, and they began to try to discredit Paul's ministry. And they did it, you can find actually in 2 Corinthians where they, they attack his appearance, they attack his unskilled speaking, which I find fascinating. You know, you think of Paul as just one of the, the trophy people of the New Testament, and evidently he was not an eloquent speaker. And they began to falsely accuse him. They also accused him because of his suffering and affliction And they basically said, if you were really an apostle of God, these things would not be happening. What does that sound like today? Sounds like prosperity gospel, doesn't it? So these false teachers arose in the church and they were trying to discredit Paul's ministry. Paul did several things. He wrote another letter, he sent Titus. And evidently we we find uh, in history and then we find in some of the verses through here that many of them had, had repented of forsaking him. So he's writing this letter to them and he's trying to further encourage the repentant. And then he's trying to call the unrepentant to repentance by defending his ministry. In his, in his defense, in this letter, we find the words glory or glorify 20 times. And 16 of those times are found in chapters three and four. 
So while this is not prescriptive, meaning this isn't Paul saying, here's what you do to glorify God and giving us commands or instructions, it's descriptive of his ministry and his life. And from this description, we see a model of how to become a glory giver. So we're going to go through the whole chapter, chapter 4, we're going to start with 318. Normally I would cover each paragraph in a separate message, but we're not unpacking all the truths of every, every paragraph, rather we're looking for the flow of how the glory of God was the basis of his life and ministry and allowing that to be a model for us. We'll start first in verse 18 of chapter three. And I'm just gonna pick up there because it kind of summarizes chapter three and leads us into uh, chapter four. This is probably a familiar verse to many of you. And all through chapter three, Paul has been contrasting the old covenant and the new covenant. And he uses the word glory a lot in chapter three. He says the old covenant was glorious, it was great. I mean, Moses had to, had to veil his face, it was so great. But then he says, but the new covenant, the gospel, is even greater. It surpasses in excellent, excellence, it is, it is greater. And then he says in verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. There's an imagery being used here of looking into a mirror. We all, with unveiled face, he's referring back to the veiled face of Moses that was described in chapter three earlier. And he's saying with the gospel, there's no more veil between us and the truth. We can see it and understand it more clearly. So we with unveiled face, beholding as in a glass. Now what do you normally see when you look into a glass or a mirror? A reflection of whatever's in front of the mirror, right? Well this is not that kind of mirror. This is a mirror like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So in Snow White, when the wicked witch would look into the mirror, what did she see? If you've seen an old version of the movie, it's almost like a theatrical mask that you see in that mirror, and it supposedly is a spirit who is trapped in that mirror, and that spirit has to always tell the truth. So the wicked witch is looking into a mirror, but not seeing herself, she's seeing something or someone else. That's this kind of mirror. When we look into the mirror, we, we can see ourselves, but what is this saying primarily that we are seeing in the mirror? Call it out. The glory of God. So we behold as in a mirror and we see the glory of God. What effect does beholding the glory of God have on us? as you look in this verse, what happens? We are changed or we are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. God is developing more and more of his glory in you as you gaze at him in the word. So the first way that you and I can develop as glory givers is to be transformed by his glory. 
It's the idea that as we're looking at the glory of God, as we're gazing at it, we're focused on it, we're studying it, we're gazing at it, a transformation happens and he starts making us like him. The verse says the spirit of God is doing this. So for me to become like him, I have to study what he's like. And then the spirit of God takes that truth and works it in my heart. At Faith Baptist Bible College, they have spirit weeks. And last year during spirit week, one of the days was a Disney character day. And I was like, oh, what shall we do? I had done nothing. It's five o'clock the night before. And my husband and I grabbed a Chick-fil-A dinner and I said, what are we gonna do? And I said, how about if we do Cruella de Vil and a Dalmatian? And the reason for that was I've been working on this white streak right here. And a man whom I greatly admire and respect at the college came up to me and said, when I see your hair, I wanna run home and protect my Dalmatians. (laughs) So that idea popped in my head, but it's six o'clock the night before. So I thought, okay, how are we gonna do this? We had two cars, how about if you go home and I'll go get what we need? So the first thing I did was to Google Cruella DeVille. I kind of had an idea of what she looked like, but I needed to do some research so I could get it right. Then I ran across the street to Joanne Fabrics and I bought what I needed. And then I ran back across the street to Party City and I bought the rest of what I needed and I bought my husband the Dalmatian outfit. (laughs) Now he had agreed to this at Chick-fil-A but I got home and I pulled it out of the bag and he said, I can't wear that. (laughs) And I said, but honey, and so he did. (laughs) It was pretty fun. But what made that possible was me gazing at an image to see what I needed to change about myself, right? It was way too fun. But I think that illustrates for us this this point that a way that we begin to be glory givers is to be transformed by gazing upon the glory of God. Where, what is the mirror in, in which, by which I see the glory of God? It's right here, isn't it? I learn about him. I learn about his wondrous works. I see his nature by looking in the mirror. Now the illustration breaks down when it comes to the fact that I can't make myself change like I could to be Cruella DeVille. But the Spirit of God does the changing and my part is the gazing, the looking at intently, the looking at for the purpose of growth and change. This change, this transformation begins with our salvation. And I think I would be doing you a disservice to assume that everyone here has begun the transformation process. If you're looking still in chapter three, if you look at verse 16, 
Just a couple of verses ahead, it says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The veil in this chapter is referring to spiritual blindness, not understanding the gospel. But when we look to the Lord, he he takes away the veil and gives us understanding. And then verse 17 says that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. He wants to free us. He wants to free us from what? He wants to free us from bondage to the law and bondage of sin. And and that's the gospel story. The gospel story is that God created man thousands of years ago to be in fellowship and communion with him. But when man chose to sin, that sin separated us from God. And each of us born ever since then is born with a sin nature and we sin. And that is a a distance, that is a barrier between us and God. But God who, who loves us so much that he doesn't want to punish us is also a just God, which means he has to punish us. So there was a a dilemma and God had the solution of sending his only son to live a, a perfect sinless life and to shed his blood for you and for me. And if you have not begun a transformation process, that's where it begins. It begins by you recognizing, I can't change myself into what I'm supposed to be. I can't get better by myself, but he wants to change me. For believers, an application here is that I think too often we look into the mirror out of obligation. If you've grown up in a Christian culture, you've been taught all your life, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. And so sometimes there's this obligation, and so I make it a part of my day, and I read my Bible, I read a devotional, and I mentally check off my list, and I feel good about myself, and I feel like, okay, God's gonna bless me because I spent time in his word. We are missing the point. The point is not that that lets you have a good day. Now, his truth will encourage your heart. His truth will comfort your heart. But the objective is that I am seeing God. I am learning what God is like. I am yielding to the work of his spirit. And he is at work changing me from glory to glory. He is is putting his glory in me and helping me to display his glory more fully. So to become a glory giver and not a glory grabber, we have to be transformed by his glory. Now look with me at chapter four, verses one through six. Paul says, therefore, since we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, there's a reference there to creation, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Kind of a deep paragraph, and we're not gonna get into the weeds of it, but what I, what I want us to see here 
is that Paul has a ministry. He mentions in verse one, I have a ministry. And what is that ministry? In verse two, the ministry is the proclaiming of the glory of God. He's not handling the word deceitfully. He's not twisting it to make it say what he wants. He's handling it clearly and truthfully, and he is proclaiming it. And then in verse five, you see, we're not preaching ourselves. This isn't about us. This isn't our own strength. This isn't about us. And there's, this also parallels with something that he says back in verse three, chapter three, verse five. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. The point he's making here in which we see a model of glory giving is that he placed his confidence in the gospel and proclaimed Jesus. So this is what you and I have to do. We have to place our confidence in the gospel and proclaim Jesus. What made it possible for him to proclaim Christ? The beautiful truth of verse six. It is the God that commanded light out of darkness who has shined into our hearts. Why? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel, the glory of God, the truth of his glory shines into us transforms us, and then we become the bearer of light, and we display that light to others. You and I have this same ministry, and this is how we display the gospel. At your place of work, are you courageously and lovingly proclaiming the gospel? That's a way that's an opportunity God's given you to display his glory. Perhaps um, you're part of a play group with neighbors. Are you looking for opportunities to proclaim Jesus Christ to them, his gospel, his glory? And are you finding your confidence in him and him alone and his message? These are ways that we display the glory of God. Now look at verse seven for our next one. Chapter four, verse seven. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. The word treasure there is referring back to the previous verse. What was the treasure? The knowledge of the glory of God that has shined into our hearts. And then the word earthen vessels there. It's, it's a Greek word that it re- literally means baked clay. And it's referring to clay pots. These were cheap, breakable, replaceable pots that in the Greek Judeo culture they would use sometimes to store valuables, but often they were used for holding garbage and human waste. Now that's just not good for my self-esteem. How about yours? But that's what Paul is comparing himself to, and that's what he's comparing our human bodies to. He's saying we are frail and weak and imperfect, and God's plan was to entrust to us the glory of God and to give us the opportunity and the responsibility to display it. Why was that God's plan? 
Look at the second half of verse seven, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Kind of like back in Judges 7, where with Gideon, I don't want this to be about you and you to think you're doing this. And I want those around you to know that the way you're living is not of yourself, but it is of me. So our point here is to remember you are a container for his glory. Remember you are a container for his glory. You know, we spend a lot of energy focused on the pot. I just chopped about eight inches off of my hair two weeks ago. And part of the reason was I was spending too much time on the pot. I just needed fast and easy because this needs to not be the priority. My husband said, I love it, but it makes you look sassier like you need any help. But we spend so much of our focus and energy on the pot that we're not focused on highlighting the treasure within. When we lived in Wisconsin, before we came here, we've been here seven years, my husband pastored in South Carolina for 12 years, and prior to that, he pastored outside of Milwaukee for almost 10 years. And while we were there, our family was very young, and we bought a little house, and I was trying to furnish it on a very low budget, and I needed lamps for our girls' bedroom. So I drove about 20 minutes up the road to a community yard sale. There were like 200 houses in it. And I happened upon these two little lamps that were partly metal in the base and then partly glass or porcelain. And I thought those are perfect. So I spent a couple of dollars on each and I brought them home and I began to clean them. And I had like a metal cleaner and I'm cleaning the outside of the metal base. And then I had a glove on and I stuck my hand up inside to clean the inside. And I felt an obstruction. So I took my glove off and I reached up in there again and I pulled out a magnet that was holding a hundred dollar bill inside my lamp. And I thought, well, this is my lucky day. So I immediately picked up the other lamp and I reached my little hand up in there and guess what? There was another magnet and another hundred dollar bill. And I thought, I just spent four bucks on two lamps and made 200. (laughs) So I know you want to know what I did with it. I said, Jesus, can I just keep this? (laughs) But I got in my car and I went back up there and I drove through the neighborhood and I thought, God, if you want me to return this money, you're gonna have to help me find the right house. So I got to this house and I thought, I think that looks familiar. I think maybe I got them there. So I went up and I rang the doorbell and the lady came to the door and I said, sorry to bother you, but did you by chance sell a couple of little lamps at the garage sale last week? She said, why, what was wrong with them? (laughs) And I said, nothing, I just trying to find out who I got them from. And she said, was there money inside of them? So her father had been um, a depression survivor didn't trust the banks, and so he stuck money in everything, and she was selling off his estate. So I gave her back her two, she did not even give me a commission. I mean, (laughs) gas money or anything. But what was happening there was the lamps, a simple, breakable, cheap object, were concealing the true treasure inside. She was oblivious to it, and I was focused on cleaning up the outside and almost missed it. 
isn't that like these clay pots? That we can get so focused on appearance and fashion and fitness and we forget that what my life is really about as a believer is this treasure that's inside of me and that that's what gives me worth and value. We need to remember that all of this is comparable to a clay pot. The real treasure is the glory of God. Look with me now at verse eight. In verse eight, Paul starts describing his affliction. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. Notice there are contrast here. He talks about a hardship and then he says, but it wasn't actually destructive. So he says here, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So what's he saying here? In the first one, he's describing that he was pressed like grapes in a wine press, but not completely broken. Perplexed, but not in despair. Many times he felt lost or confused and didn't know what to do, but he didn't lose sight of God's care. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Everywhere he went, he was pursued and opposed, but God never left him to face it alone. He was struck down, but not destroyed. He was knocked down, but he got up and kept going. So he's using these contrasts to describe to us his affliction and his suffering. How was he able to keep going? Look at verse 10 and 11. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? In other words, always being willing to suffer like Jesus did. Why? That the life of Jesus also may be manifested. We said this morning that means clearly visible, seen. That the life of Jesus may be manifested in her bo- our body. He says it again at the end of verse 11. That the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Whenever you see repetition in scripture, the author, it's not a bad writing assignment, The author is emphasizing his point. So the way that he was able to endure suffering and glorify God in his suffering was the goal of displaying the nature of God. Displaying the nature of Jesus Christ through his suffering. May I suggest this? The way that we display glory as modeled here is by viewing every difficult thing that you face as an opportunity for the glory of God to be displayed. It echoes a little bit of the illustration I used this morning about what God's been doing in my own life with my own personal heartache. So like Paul, you and I become glory givers when we view every trial as an opportunity to display his glory. As people observe you navigating your trials, I've got a fly in love with me. As people observe you navigating your trials, what do they see? Can they see God's nature on display? Or do they see your flesh? This graphic that I've used here is a piece of translucent 
porcelain. Do you know the difference between clay pottery and translucent porcelain? Some minerals are added and then it is heated to a temperature greater than 2,000 degrees. And that heat bakes that clay and purifies it and makes it translucent. There are other passages that use that, a similar description to talk about God's work in our lives. And so the heat represents the trials, the hard things, and yet the result of that can be the treasure within being more clearly seen. They're seeing through the exterior clay and they're seeing the treasure within. I love the passage that I mentioned this morning in 1 Peter 1, where Peter starts out by talking about, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has begotten us again. And he talks about our inheritance in Christ. And then he says, I think it's verse five, in this, that inheritance and what we have to look forward to, we greatly rejoice, although now for a little while, if need be, we have been grieved by various trials that the sincerity or genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that is tried by fire, may be to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? That our trials, the heat of our trials, can do a purifying work to where the treasure within is more clearly seen. Finally, at the end of this chapter, we see one more, one more thing that Paul is modeling that helps us to develop as glory givers. We're gonna call this one anticipate future glory. Refers to it a little bit in verse 14 where he says that we, we can look forward to being raised again. He looks forward to it in verse 15 that everything he's going through is for the sake of other people because we're gonna be thanking God when they come to Jesus. And then in verse 16, he says, therefore we do not lose heart. Notice he's going all the way back to how he started this chapter. Paul's kind of like that. He, he makes a statement in verse one. He said, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. And then he kind of took a side road and he did a bunch of teaching and then he came back. I think this was what he was planning to say when he first started. He comes back in verse 16. We don't lose heart, why? Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. I love this paragraph. I could talk about this paragraph for an hour. I will not. You're welcome. <laughs> but I like to think of this in, in my little faith simple terms as, although my body's fallen apart, my inner self is being renewed day by day. This is encouraging as you start to age and sag and bag and wrinkle. That although this corruptible body is deteriorating, I can actually be getting better on the inside as I am being renewed day by day. Verse 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. How many of you think your affliction is light? How many of you feel like it's only lasting for a moment? There's a comparative statement here. He's comparing it to the eternal weight of glory. So it's like, I might have to put up with this for the rest of my life. Yes, but on a timeline 
an infinite timeline, it's a little tick. My little 70 years is a tick. And if I can have that perspective and look forward to to this eternal weight of glory. It's interesting too that he says here that your affliction, leave out the parenthetical clause, which is but for a moment. Your affliction is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. He's saying there, he's referring back I think to his description of his hard stuff. That is actually what God is using to prepare for you eternal glory. How, why? What we've already said. Because you are becoming, as you allow the Spirit to work, more and more glorified, more and more like Him. And you can look forward ultimately to being completely glorified one day. Verse 18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Here he is determining to live for what lasts and not for what is temporary. He says, as we look not at the things that are seen. The word look there is not a glance. The word look there is talking about a concentrated attention, a steady gaze. And he's saying, here's what we're not looking at, the things that are seen, the temporal things, the problems of today but we're looking ahead at what is unseen because that's what's eternal. Now what is unseen? The treasure within, um, the glory that God is working, the eternal glory to come. I love the song that we sang there at the end. It has the phrase in it, we will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. Where's our gaze? How does that help us be glory givers? By having an eternal gaze. I would suggest that I can be so focused on the temporal, my circumstances, my physical being, my responsibilities and problems, that all I can see is the here and the now. And when all I can see is the here and the now, now, then my responses, my attitudes are just like the world's. But it's as I'm looking at my circumstances through the lens of eternity that I can have a different response and that I can display His glory. Um, I wasn't able to go to Sandy's workshop and. I'm wondering if maybe what she focused on might overlap with what I'm about to say. Um, But many of you are young moms here and you feel like you're just surviving the day and everything feels very mundane. You are washing the same little bottoms every day and you're cleaning up crumbs under the same high chair every day and you're just surviving. I remember feeling like, we had four kids in five and a half years and I remember feeling like it was a good day if we were dressed and fed, and there was something started for supper when my husband got home. I remember my mother-in-law, my mother-in-law is almost 101, and she lived in our home for 12 years until about a year and a half ago, and she has to be in a, a facility now. She has progressed dementia. But I remember her mentoring me as a young wife, and she's from a completely different generation. She's the age of my grandparents, so it was kind of funny. It was like my mother-in-law was a new grandmother, a delightful lady, and I remember her saying to me, 
when your day is rough and you don't have time to fix supper, just simmer a little garlic and onion on the stove in some butter. And then when he comes home, he'll smell it and think something wonderful is happening. And I'm like, then what? Order a pizza to dip in it, you know? But many, are, many of you are in this trench of early mommyhood, and you don't feel like anything you're doing has eternal value. May I suggest to you that if changing those little diapers and soothing those little wounds and refereeing those little sibling rivalries, if that is what God has called you to, and you do it with a heart that wants to glorify God in how you do it, that that has eternal weight. God doesn't look down and say, oh, what you're doing is important, so that's laying up treasure for heaven. God looks down, I think, and says, you're doing exactly what I called you to do. And if you're doing it, if you're saying, Lord, help me to do this today to glorify you, Help me to show gospel love to these kids. Give me your patience. Help them to see your nature in me. Then even the mundane tasks are of eternal glory. If you don't have that eternal view, you're going to drown in diapers, right? So it has to do with my perspective and changing my view. Are you focused on the here and the now? Or are you focused on the then and the there? I understand that we have to focus to a degree on our responsibilities for the day. But this is talking about where is your steady gaze? What's your aim? A couple weeks ago, I put my contacts in and I started about my day and I thought, I can't see today. Something's wrong. Have my eyes, eyes, I'll try not to be so Southern, have my eyes changed over, <laughs> changed overnight? And I thought, I put in a new contact this morning. What is going on? I couldn't read distance. I couldn't read up close. And I tried to do life for about six hours. And I thought, I'm done. These have got to come out. So I went to the bathroom and I went to take my contacts out. And I discovered I had them both in the same eye. (laughs) Add to that lovely little trivia the fact that I wear monovision contacts. One is distance, one is up close. I have them piled on top of each other in one eye. And all through the day, I'm like, okay, when you wear those, you don't really see which one is which. Your brain adjusts. And so I would cover up my my right eye because this is my close-up. I can't see. Did I put them in the wrong? Anyway, I had them piled on top of each other. So the, the tool that was supposed to help me focus on the here and the now and the out there, they were piled on top of each other and I was trying to do both through the same eye. It didn't work so well. I couldn't see either clearly. That's like us. I can't be consumed with the here and the now and the then and the there. I've gotta make a decision. I remember the summer after my 10th grade year, I was at the Wilds Camp in North Carolina, and I remember God convicting my heart that I was straddling the fence. I wanted to live for Jesus. I really wanted to be a missionary in Africa and have monkeys. I loved monkeys. (laughs) But I also wanted to be very popular in my high school. 
And I remember thinking, I don't think this is working too well. And I remember saying, Jesus, will you help me get off the fence? And I wanna live completely for you. I wanna have that eternal view. I have a friend who went through a miscarriage and it was very difficult for her because it was after a long battle of infertility. And we spent hours on the phone talking. And she came back to me recently and she said, you said something in that conversation that really helped me. I said, what? I have no clue what I said. And she said, you said, you need to take the long view. And that as long as she was focused on the current pain and the infertility, she was gonna drown in her sorrow. But that if she could have the long view, what's the long view I think, of, a, of a miscarriage? I think it's this. God entrust to your womb a life and your greatest goal as a believer is to see that soul safely home to heaven. I said, Krista, you have done what God called you to do for that precious life. You have seen that soul safely home to glory. That's the long view. But can you see how my view is going to greatly affect my ability to display his glory? So anticipate future glory, take the long view. Notice with me that our text begins and ends with a gaze. Look back at chapter three, verse 18. We are beholding the glory of the Lord. There's a, a steady gaze. And now look here in this last paragraph. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are eternal. To sum all of this up, becoming a glory giver starts with a focus and ends with a focus. It starts with a focus on the glory of God through his word. It ends with a focus on eternal things. And as I follow the model that Paul has given me, by God's grace, by God's enabling power, I will be developing as a glory giver. He will transform me by his glory. He will give me opportunities to proclaim the gospel and live a life of not self-sufficiency, but of sufficiency in Christ. As I remember that I'm a container for his glory, I can allow him to be purifying the clay pot so that the treasure within can be seen more and more. I can learn to view every trial as an opportunity to display his glory. When we have a trial, we naturally want out from under, right? Prayer meeting, pray for me that this will go away. But sometimes we need to be praying. It's fine to ask God to remove something hard. Jesus did three times, Paul did three times. But there needs to be an acceptance of the fact that God may not remove this hard thing and if not, what is he trying to shape in me? So rather than just pray for deliverance, say, God, help me to be open-handed, relinquishing my desires and yielding to what you're trying to shape in me through this trial. And then finally, by God's grace, live a life that is focused on eternal things. As you're scheduling your day, 
as you're determining your attitude about the mundane task. God, I I can do this for your glory because this is what you've called me to do. Revelation 4.11 says, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. God created you for his glory. Are you giving him glory? Or are you striving with him and trying to grab glory? Is the desire of my heart, even here this weekend, is the desire of my heart for you to say, God is glorious, or faith is pretty amazing? What's the desire of our hearts? I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads for a minute. I like to end retreats with just a minute for you to respond. You're gonna leave here, you're gonna pack up, you're gonna go with your friends and you're gonna drive home and you're gonna jump back into life. And I would just like to give you a, a moment in the quietness of your own heart to respond to whatever God has said to you this weekend. Has God challenged you in some way, some little step of obedience he's asking you to take to move toward becoming a glory giver? In your pride, have you been blinded to your glory grabbing? Confess that, ask God to show you. Have you embraced that your greatest calling is to display his glory? God, help me to be a vessel that displays your glory. And is there, is there some step here in Paul's model that you need to say, Lord, transform me. Lord, help me to display the treasure without, within and not focus on the outer. Lord, help me to view my trials as an opportunity to display your glory. Or God, help me to live anticipating future glory. Maybe you're here and you haven't begun that transformation process. Would you acknowledge to the Lord, Lord, I need you. I need you as my savior. And allow him to begin to make you a glory giver. Just respond to God in your own heart and mind. God, help us to do business with you, to respond to the truths of your word. Help us to be encouraged by your mercy, your patience with us. Help us to be encouraged by the work of your spirit in our lives. Lord, you don't leave us alone to figure out life, but you enable us and guide us. Help us to be humbled before you. And God, work in each of us to make us more of a glory giver today than we were yesterday. In your precious name we pray, amen.